Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As many of our regular listeners will know by now, we have three types of podcast in our series. We have our interview series where we chat to a range of experts on policy topics that we think will be of interest to you. We have our 10 minute lesson series where we take a brief overview of some policy areas touching on the key topics that we think our listeners need to know about. And then we have our seminar series where we take a look back at our seminars and our conferences and some of the key presentations. Today's episode is one of those. On Friday the 18th of February, we launched our Sustainable Progress Index 2022, comparing Ireland to our EU 14 peers. Opening our webinar was Professor Charles Clark of St. John's University in New York. He's one of the co-authors of this publication, and he is concentrating today on well-being, happiness, and how you might go about measuring it. We hope you enjoy. Okay, thank you, Sean, for the introduction. Uh, And reminded me that the two groups I've done the most for is Social Justice Ireland and the New York City Police Union. So one group can get me into trouble, but the other can get me out of trouble. So it works out that way. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Okay, just to give an overview of uh, the whole report, uh, my part is the first two. I'm going to look at the overall question of well-being uh, and how it has entered into policy discussions and and the the different ranges of uh, how you define well-being. Um, then we'll look at how it's measured. Uh, The two main approaches are the objective measures and the subjective. Uh, The sustainable development goals are examples of objective measures. Okay, so my presentation is giving some background on the overall idea of well-being and how it is used in economics. For our purposes, we're going to look at well-being and happiness as if they're interchangeable terms. Uh, That's because they are usually are interchangeable the way they're used. Psychologists would define them differently, uh, but the economists aren't as exact as that. And so if we look at the overall issue, uh, we see that the idea of well-being has been a concern, not just recently, but it goes back to Aristotle. Uh, And in fact, the role of the state playing, the state playing a role in promoting that also goes back to Aristotle. And for most economists, we look at, well, we can promote well-being by increasing wealth because wealth will give us more resources, which mean that individuals can buy more so they can achieve more happiness or at least meet their needs better. And for the society as a whole, they can provide better healthcare, education, infrastructure if they have more resources. So the emphasis has all been on how do we create wealth or more exactly, how do we get the economy to grow as measured by gross domestic product? But something that the philosophers and Adam Smith have also pointed out is that yes, wealth is a necessary aspect for promoting well-being, uh, but it's not sufficient. That is uh, up to a point, doesn't have the effect and often economic growth can be a barrier to well-being. So after World War II, governments took responsibility for promoting economic growth uh, and GDP became the main way that this was measured uh, and the main measure of success and target. 
Uh, and then we started to get some uh, criticisms because, well, first, GDP leaves out many important things. Uh, it doesn't measure home production, such as childcare, so it ignores a lot of what is important contributions to society, but they're not counted. Also, a lot of negative things lead to market transactions, so they increase GDP, but they're not necessarily increasing well-being, such as pollution, crime, uh, illness. So for the past 30, 40 years, people have pointed out that you know, GDP either is uh, misleading or it is distorting, to a certain extent, how a country is doing. Ireland has its own special problems, which most recently go to the problem of, of foreign companies and how they book their profits and how this distorts uh, Ireland's GDP. We see uh, a table which shows just GDP per capita on the left, where Ireland in our group of 14 countries comes in second, 62%, 62.6% above the overall average for those countries at 72,000 per cap euros per capita, which is, you know, it just isn't reasonable that Ireland is 62% richer than the average of all these countries. If we use instead final consumption as a measure, which is actually a better measure of how much people are actually buying, both as households and also as the government, we see that Ireland is more towards the middle and just a little over 1.8% above the average. On the right, we have a graph which shows the relationship between GDP per capita and final consumption. We see all but two of the countries are right on top of the trend line. So, and the, the R square is 0.9677, which is phenomenally high for economics. And we see Ireland and Luxembourg just way off of that. So clearly something else is going on. Uh, so if we needed more evidence of not relying on GDP to measure how Ireland is doing, uh, this, is, this adds to that. Okay, so as I said, there's been a, a long tradition now of uh, going to, or arguing to go beyond GDP. Some of the early efforts are the Human Development Index, which was developed by uh, the United Nations Development Program. And it takes, starts with GDP, but it adds education and healthcare uh, or education statistics and a healthcare or a health statistic, longevity, a life expectancy, uh, with the idea of trying to get more focus on them in terms of policy. Uh, all the attention in terms of development policy has been on GDP growth, and they wanted to look at, they wanted to focus on those two factors. It didn't have much of an impact in terms of changing uh, the focus, but it led to a lot of other uh, measures. And I'm just going to look at a couple, uh, just to mention a couple. One, the genuine progress indicator was an early attempt to adjust GDP based on costs that are not included, particularly environmental costs. And so their analysis show that in terms of the United States, a lot of what is really, what is measured as economic growth is really because of social and environmental decay. And that the actual progress uh, since the 19, uh, late 70s has been rather, rather flat, which is how people feel. But if you look at GDP statistics, it looks like, well, the country has kept on growing. 
So this is an early attempt, and this is being pursued at the United Nations. Next week starts the Statistical Commission, and we'll have some discussion on green accounting and how to get environmental statistics into the national income accounting systems. Uh, Catherine and I did an index of social progress for Ireland 1996 based on the index of social health in the United States to just show that there, to give an example of what could be done outside of just relying on GDP. The real change comes with the Stiglitz and Tausi report, which just really adds the support of two Nobel Prizes. Uh, Joseph Stiglitz and Amartya Sen are probably, not probably, they are definitely the two most important economists of their generation. Uh, and their report led a lot of weight to the idea that we have to go beyond just looking at production as our measure and looking at well-being. And they provide a list of the factors that should be included in well-being. And if we look at many of the reports that come after that, many of the indices and uh, well-being statistics that come after, they're greatly influenced by this report. Okay, now the report points out and, you know, Sen is a great philosopher as well, so we're not surprised. The report points out the importance of the philosophical underpinnings of how you measure well-being. Because, you know, measuring well-being isn't something that is, you know, an objective fact that is just outside of value judgments. It takes, you have to start first with how you define what is a human and what would be human flourishing. Uh, and so the report goes over three basic approaches I'm going to go in reverse order, and they give very little attention to this, but the fair allocation method is really what economists do and did before these new developments in measuring well-being, and that's fair allocation is really just welfare economics, uh, which in my micro-principles class we did uh, this, uh, this week. Uh, so it's standard economics, and it looks at how you can compare two positions uh, based on using the willingness to pay criteria. Now, when you're looking at market transactions uh, and you have competitive markets, well, then you can get very useful results. But the economists have been trying to apply this to non-market phenomena, which uh, has all sorts of problems. Uh, and by using the willingness to pay method, uh, it distorts really what are the values or the, 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 the happiness for rich people uh, because that will just, has so many, they, they have so many more uh, market voices that, that they spend more money in the economy than everyone else. And so it distorts their preferences over society as a whole. But the two new developments have been the, based on the capabilities approach, which is comes from uh, Sen's work. And if you're interested in this, the best book to read is uh, Development as Freedom. But it looks at, the capabilities approach looks at what are the capabilities you need in order to make decisions in your life to pursue the life that you think is meaningful. And so, but it looks at sort of the objective conditions, such as employment uh, and income would be part of that, but it would be a lot of other factors. And Sen's work really laid the foundation for the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals. If you spend any time uh, working at the United Nations, uh, you see that Sen is sort of the philosopher of the United Nations and he has greatly influenced uh, their agencies and the work they do. More 
recently has been the subjective well-being uh, approach, which is based on the science of happiness, which comes from psychology and other disciplines. It's also based on behavioral economics. In fact, behavioral economics is the application of uh, the welfare economics that we talked before, but taking a different view of how humans make decisions, uh, realizing that humans don't have perfect foresight, and so they they are influenced by various other factors, and that we don't expect perfect rationality in decision making. Uh, and so, behavioral economics has had a, a big impact here. Now, whereas the capabilities approach is really looking at you know, do you have a, the capabilities or the foundation in order to, like, access to education, things like that, access to health care? The subjective well-being looked at outcomes. And so there, some of the work is looking at actual outcomes, so they use objective measures. But a lot of the work is moving more and more towards these surveys. And uh, probably the biggest one is the Gallup survey, which just measure the, all across the world has these lengthy surveys to determine happiness uh, levels in each country. And the basic idea here is to look at how changes in the economy impact the level of happiness. So here we have an example of some of the objective measures, GDP on the left, this is the social progress index, which is put together by uh, Michael Porter, the, the uh, management uh, professor, then the Sustainable Development Goal Index, which is put together by Jeffrey Sachs. And then the one I wanna just talk a little bit about, the World Happiness Index. The World Happiness Index looks at five or six objective measures, but then they also add these surveys and they come up with a life satisfaction uh, score. And this is the average, uh, Ireland is 7.035, uh, but uh, so they have, have a mixture, but there are ones uh, that look just at uh, survey scores of how people feel about uh, their life and different aspects of their lives. Uh, and the Gallup poll being the biggest one. I wasn't able to figure out how I can get to reproduce the Gallup uh, results without copyright infringement. So I, I wasn't able to include it. But what's really interesting is the results of the, uh, of the subjective well-being research. I mean, there are hundreds of studies uh, which look at how change in the rate of unemployment affects these survey results. The loss of a job, uh, inflation, getting a job, getting a raise, all sorts of changes in your life, getting married, getting divorced. Uh, and how that affects your different happiness scores. Uh, the two I wanna mention are uh, the first two that we have here, and that's health, uh, the health statistics, the health variables, particularly mental health. The results show that considerable uh, a positive effect by addressing mental health. And this has led to some countries dramatically increasing their funding of mental health because that they've been able to show what positive impact it has. Uh, on, the, on the finance side, the results show that increase in income increases well-being, uh, particularly if you're in poverty, it's a lasting effect, 
But if you're out of poverty, if you have uh, a middle class or better standard of living, the increase in income has a short-term effect. You feel better for a while, but then you go back to where you were before. Okay. And so there are all sorts of problems uh, that you have to be aware of with subjective well-being, uh, particularly when you're measuring people's reporting of their feelings and how, the, how, you know, how they feel about their situation. And then you compare countries because there could be great cultural differences. Uh, but one of the things that we find is over time, with many different other variables, uh, we see little impact on the average level of happiness. Uh, Japan is an example in there. They have the research on Japan uh, and their level of happiness going back you know, very far when the, Japan was still poor. And now, of course, Japan is very rich. And the level of happiness hasn't really changed all that much. Uh, now, the OECD has taken the lead in developing these well-being platforms. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that and then get to, to Ireland's one. Uh, but the current version has this sort of three-framework approach. One is the here and now, which looks at those factors that are in the Sen uh, and Stigler's report on income, wealth, et cetera. And then you have, uh, but then they look at inequalities between and within groups so that you're not just reporting what is the average, but you look at gender differences and you look at how income inequality effect, uh, affects results. And then the third is focusing on future well-being, what they're calling the four capitals. They're looking at economic capital, natural capital, human capital, and social capital. But if you go to this website that we have uh, a picture of here, you know they encourage you to change what you think are important, the weights, and then you see how that affects the results. So Ireland has used this, and lots of countries have used the OECD uh, in its well-being information hub. And Unlike the OECD, which is looking at comparing countries, Ireland is mostly focused on comparing Ireland to how Ireland has done in the past. Most of their factors are on the here and now list. They have some different variables. Uh, they have in in the uh, CSO CSO they have housing construction, which wouldn't normally be there, but it's a big issue in Ireland. So obviously they're they're adding it for that. There's some analysis of inequality, particularly good on gender and household type, uh, but I couldn't find much in the way of income inequality. Uh, and, and we'll see an example how that could be important. And there's some on uh, the four capitals, particularly natural and human capital, but it's not, not as much on uh, social capital. So here we see so from the OECD uh, results why inequality can be very important. So on the left, we have the life satisfaction score, how it's the difference between house, a person who's at the 80th percentile, it means they make more than 80% of the country, with someone who's in the 20th percentile. So the average for the Euro 14 that we're looking at is 2.1. So the, on average, the 80th percentile is 2.1 times happier uh, or is a higher life satisfaction score than uh, the 20th percentile. In Ireland, it's 2.3. And we see uh, Finland has the lowest at 1.5. Uh, 
on the right, we see uh, attitudes towards the healthcare, and it gives a range of those at the top and those at the bottom, the 80th and 20th percentile uh, for the income category. We see Ireland's doing very good in terms of uh, adults reporting of the healthcare, both at the bottom and at the top. But I think it's useful to give that range. And then in terms of the measures of economic, uh, measures of the future capital, here we have uh, just two examples. There are many examples under all four categories in the OECD report. Uh, but I picked out these two, one because, you know, one is obviously very worrying or could be very worrying. And that's the financial net worth of total economy. We see Ireland is really an outlier here. Now, this could be because of all the debt from the financial uh, crisis, uh, but it also could be part of the whole mess up that happens to the to the general to uh, uh, national statistics accounting because of all the foreign companies and how they book their profits. You know, but that's certainly be wor worth looking into because you know clearly you don't want to have a country that is that in debt because that that will involve future transfers to whoever they're indebted to. Uh, and then on the right, we have a measurement of government stakeholder engagement uh, comparing 2014 with 2018. And here we have Ireland, uh, the second uh, country in the lowest in terms. And this measures how engaged citizens can be in, in the creation of laws and, and regulations. Uh, and the idea that more engaged the uh, that the more well-being, because the, there is evidence that the more engaged the population is is in the political system, uh, the higher the levels of happiness. Okay, so the purpose of what we do is to just try to give as much evidence and a wide range of evidence to help policymakers and citizens evaluate the current situation uh, and benchmark it against countries that are similar. So that if your country has a low uh, statistic in one area, you could look at what are the countries that are doing well in that area? What do they do uh, that could be could be duplicated in, in Ireland? Uh, well-being frameworks usually provide a wider range of factors than just looking at GDP. Uh, they can allow for historical and social context, which is always, often missing in economic variables, but that's, that's very good. Subjective well-being measures can be, I think, taken to the extreme. That is, instead of just looking at how people feel about an outcome, they look at this, how positive thinking can change how they feel about the outcome. So if you lose your job, obviously you're gonna feel less happy uh, and the solution should be a better labor market, not, well, let's make you feel less happy about the fact that you've lost your job. Uh, I think the advantages of the objective measures like the Sustainable Development Goals is that they are widely accepted and they've become part of official data collection uh, and they don't have as many of the problems that the subjective measures uh, can have. But again, the purpose is to learn from other countries' experience. Uh, this is the Olympic seasons now. This is not the Olympics of social, economic, environmental statistics. We're not looking at bragging rights. What we're looking at is how we can learn from other people's experience. Uh, this very business education approach, 
uh, but I think it's very useful in terms of understanding public policy. Uh, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that. If you want to check out the full presentations from the seminar, you can get them on our website, socialjustice.ie. You can also get the full publication downloaded for free on socialjustice.ie. If you have any queries or questions, please don't hesitate to get in touch, and particularly if you have any suggestions for future podcasts. Please do contact us on secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.